Welcome to Is It Halloween Yet? Episode 20, a spooky little podcast where we talk about all things horror and ask... Is it Halloween yet? I'm afraid not, ghouls, ghosts, and goblins. It's 259 days until Halloween. I'm your ghostess, Spencer, and welcome to Chainsaw Week. We've got our first double feature, Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation. We'll also have new videos and mini podcasts coming to you every day this week leading up to Netflix's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre on Friday. So let's see what the world of interactive horror has for us this week. It's time for video game news. It won't be long until we get to find our way through From Software's latest horror-filled, hard-as-balls game Elden Ring. The Japanese gaming site Gabatsu let us know that the game has gone gold, and that means it's on its way to be pressed into physical copies and that it will be in our sweaty try-hard hands on schedule on February 25th. Psychological horror game Madison is finally headed for release after developer Nosebleed Games navigated its way through some legal disputes over its name. The developer let us know that they will now be known as Bloodiest Games and that Madison is getting a much wider release with a console physical and digital editions that will be published by Perp Games. The game looks extremely unsettling as you play a kidnapped girl named Luca who must fight the demon Madison while trying to escape. Dead by Daylight's current tome, the 10th one in fact, is Saw-themed. The premium track of the tome gives you a sick skin for the pig, aka Amanda, everyone's favorite Jigsaw follower. You've got plenty of time to hop in and work your way through this event in one of the most interesting killers in the game. Evil Dead the Game has a release date of Friday, May 13th. The game is an asymmetrical horror game that Dead by Daylight has made famous. You can play as one of four team survivors or as the Kandarian demon who will hunt Ash and his friends. We also found out this week that we'll be getting a deeper look at the gameplay in a second gameplay trailer and that pre-orders will launch soon. I'm excited to see what kind of different twists the IP brings to this formula and I cannot wait to get my hands on it. In more excellent news, Supermassive Games has trademarked five new names for their beloved The Dark Pictures anthology. We learned last fall that this year's The Devil in Me would be the season finale. This has put a little doubt in the future of the game, but it looks like the future is bright for this excellent dark narrative series. If you don't wish to know the games of the titles, skip ahead to the Banshee screen. The titles are as followed. The Dark Pictures, The Craven Man. The Dark Pictures presents... O Death, The Dark Pictures, Directive 8020, The Dark Pictures, Intercession, The Dark Pictures, The Winterfold. All of those names sound delightful. I guess it's time to hear from that screaming banshee. <coughs> Speaking of bright futures, Fatal Frame, Maiden of Blackwater remaster has sold 340 units worldwide i would love for this number to grow but it looks like it's a large enough number to get the folks at koei tecmo to let us know that the response was so much more positive than they had expected while no new game has been announced we are getting a live action movie directed by christopher gantz who took on the silent hill film adaptation so hopefully for fatal frame fans like myself we can see the switch pull more attention and get more traction to this dark and eerie franchise 
The internet fell in love with Akumi Nakamura at the Bethesda E3 launch of Tokyo Ghostwire, and while she has left Tango Gameworks, the game she helped launch is headed our way on March 25th for PS5 and PC. Sony gave us a look at the pre-order bonuses and some gameplay, and I'm very excited to stroll through the fog-burdened streets of Tokyo and kill monsters and demons with my mysteriously got ethereal weaving ability. You know we'll be checking this one out on Friday Night Frights as soon as it launches. Sticking with the smaller screen, now it's time for horror TV news. Stephen King is getting a limited series from Blumhouse Television of his latest novel, Later. The pulpy crime thriller follows a single mother who wants a normal childhood for her anything but normal child. We've got little details, but Ryla Tucker, who worked both on True Blood and Jessica T Jones, is attached, along with Lucy Liu to star. American McGee's Alice is coming to a TV near you. X-Men writer David Hare is coming on as showrunner. Not a lot more news than that, but if you are like me, you're excited to see the gory Wonderland show up on our screens. A&E buys the V.C. Andrews collection for Lifetime Projects. Starting this summer with Flowers in the Attic, The Origin, the show stars Jenna Ruper as Olivia Winfield Foxworth, who will become the horrific grandmother in Flowers in the Attic. The series is based off the novel Garden of Shadows. Seriously, as someone who read V.C. Andrews way too young, I can't say I'm stoked, but I am interested to see that the novelist has come around again to terrorize a whole new generation. I haven't gotten around to the TV adaptation of Jerusalem's Lot Chapelweight, but it's exciting to see a horror show renewed for a second season. It will be returning to net to epics, not Netflix. It'll be returning to epics, and yes, Aiden Brody will once again star. Also from Epics, we are getting a docu-series that will look at the real-life murders behind the Amityville horror. Making of a Haunting, the Amityville Murders, the four-part series, focuses more on the 1974 DeFeo murders and not the scary ghost stories that have been covered in the Amityville horror. It feels like the new year is in full swing, and we've got a lot of movie news to talk this week. The next A Quiet Place movie has moved dates from March 2023 to September 2023. The spinoff is directed by Pig director Michael Skronofsky. We don't know much more beyond that, and the date is just one of the last to feel still very much in play during a pandemic-driven box office. A Mortal Kombat sequel is in the works with Jeremy Slatter. We'll get more details of this sequel, and I will pass them along to you, but it is coming. Netflix just dropped $65 million on the Lee Daniels exorcism movie. The film will follow the true story of Latoya Amones and her three children who experienced strange and demonic incidences in their Gary, Indiana home. The film will star Andrea Day, Octavia Spencer, Glenn Close, Rob Morgan, and Caleb McLaughlin. If you know me, you know I think one of the biggest Oscar snubs of all time is Doug Jones in The Shape of Water. 
Yes, I'm serious. More than Tony Collette for Hereditary, and here's why. Doug Jones's The Amphibian Man is the anchor that all the stellar and nominated acting revolves around. Sally Harkley's Elsa isn't as powerful without the nuances of Jones acting. And yes, she is falling in love with a monster, but without a strong sense of who that man is and an actor who can portray it, the film's underlying thesis as man is the actual monster is lost. All that is to say that Doug Jones is finally getting his due from somewhere. The Makeup Artist and Hairstylist Guild is giving him the inaugural chair award. And it's cool to know that he's a pleasure to work with in such a grueling environment as a makeup chair. This next bit of news is exciting. We are getting a film that dives into the mind of the mother of science fiction as she birthed the genre into the world. Mary's monster will follow the author as she struggles to complete her 1818 masterpiece, Frankenstein. The film is written by Deborah Backstrom and it will be directed by Farin Blackburn. Coralie Farjet is back behind the camera in a follow-up to her fantastic horror flick, Revenge. The Substance will star... Margaret Qualley and Demi Moore. We don't know much more beyond that production for this film will start in May. If you haven't seen Revenge, go watch it. Trigger warnings. It's very graphic. There is, it deals with rape and you should be well warned going into it, but it is very good. Jordan Peele's Monkey Paw Productions has picked up the project from this year's Sundance Dramatic Jury Prize winner, Nikuya Jitsu. Jitsu's Sundance breakthrough, Nanny, is one of my most anticipated films this year, so I'm excited to see her get the bump from the powerhouse that Monkey Paw is becoming. White Knight is a biopic thriller about one of the largest mass murder suicides in human history, the Jonestown Massacre. Written by William Wheeler and based on survivor Deborah Layton's memoirs, Seductive Poison, the film will star Chloe Grace Moretz as Layton, and the movie has found its charismatic People's Temple cult leader, Jim Jones, in actor Joseph Gordon-Levitt. As we find out more about this film, I will let you know. We're finally getting plot details for the A24 slasher, Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. According to A24, when a group of rich 20-somethings planned a hurricane party at a remote family mansion, a party team turns deadly in a fresh and funny look at backstabbing, fake friends, and one party gone very, very wrong. Bodies, Bodies, Bodies stars Amanda Selberg, Maria Bovlava, Pete Davidson, and Lee Pace. It's directed by Halina Regine, and Bodies, Bodies, Bodies will premiere at South by Southwest on March 14th. Beloved horror actor Robert London is headed to Netflix along with Acer Butterfield in Choose or Die, a horror-based, a horror film, Choose or Die, a horror film based on the lost 80s survival horror game that has a hidden curse that will lead the developer to face some high-stake choices that have deadly consequences. Netflix also showed off Jamie Foxx's vampire movie, Day Shift. Fox stars as a working father who moonlights at a San Fran... Fernando Valley pool cleaning job to hide his true calling, hunting and killing vampires as a part of an international vampire hunting union. We haven't gotten a release date on this yet, but it's headed to our living room sometime this year. Even more 
from Netflix. <laughs> we got a peek at Alejandro Brua's new film, The Inheritance. According to Netflix, on the eve of his 75th birthday, billionaire Charles Abernathy invites his four estranged children back home out of fear that someone or something is coming to kill him. To ensure his family will protect him from whatever is coming, Abernathy puts each of their inheritances on the line. They get nothing if he's found dead by dawn. I'm a sucker for the recent resurgence of haunted guys, of rich guys haunted by their past. Uh, so count me in for this one, too. Insidious fans have been enjoying the fake trailer that's making its way around to YouTube. But don't despair. Insidious 5 is very, very real. And we found out that everyone's favorite ghost hunter, Patrick Wilson, is returning to direct and star. The film is set to shoot this spring, and it's a direct sequel to the first two Insidious films, and we'll pick up with the Lamberts as Dalton begins college 10 years after the first movie. Written by Scott Teams with a story by Lee Winnell, I'm excited to see the Lamberts and for one of the best IP in horror to get a brand new entry. The Irish horror flick the Cellar is headed to South by Southwest and then into our homes via Shudder, the Irish film that follows Elisa Cusberth as a woman who discovers there's an ancient horror controlling her house, will hit your screen sometime in April. Now it's time to see what's out to murder your pocketbook and haunt your home theater. It's time for home releases. New Year's Evil is headed to Blu-ray with a new 2K master, thanks to Kino Lorber's studio classic. The Blu-ray of the 80s holiday-themed slasher will include the making of New Year's Evil, featuring interviews with cast and crew, and it's headed to your home on April 12th. Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer, is headed for 4K and Blu-ray on April 18th. The 4K Ultra HD release is region free, so that means even us here in the US can partake in Arrow Video's UK release. This release is stacked with features, and here's just a sample of what you can look forward to. A brand new 4K restoration from the original negatives approved by John McNaughton. A brand new audio commentary by John McNaughton and Steve A. Jones. Henry versus the MPAA, a visual history, the story of the struggle to get Henry into the North American theaters, twisting the lens, the diegetic camera, and voyeurism in Henry, an exclusive new documentary with John McNaughton, Ryan, uh, Adam Rockoff, and Anna Borske discussing the killers behind the camera, and Portrait, the making of Henry, a 50-minute behind-the-scene documentary. This is a big collection and if you love behind the scenes sneak peeks and commentaries i suggest you get your hand on this classic happy death day and happy death day 2 are getting new 4k blu-ray two-pack on april 26th added is new audio commentary with director christopher landon and actress jessica roth both films are included i hope that this is another hint to whatever jason bloom is teasing about this movie's franchise and i look forward to adding it to my collection this spring Cursed is headed to Blu-ray for the first time. Now, there was a little confusion around the announcement of this film. People took copy from the back of the unrated DVD release and extrapolated that to mean that this was the legendary Craven cut. It's not. Scream Factory has to say, please note the unrated is not the original Craven cut of the film featuring different actors in the roles. We tried. Too bad we couldn't find it. I would love to see that if it existed someday. But we will be getting extras at a later date, and it's a new HD transfer of both the theatrical and the unrated cuts. 
Hammer Horror Classic Night Creatures starring Peter Cushing is getting a Blu-ray release thanks to Scream Factory. The 1962 classic stars everyone's favorite Grand Moff as a lost reverend in a coastal town with a curse. You can pick this one up on April 19th. One of the first entries, I'd argue, into our current slasher revival is 2017's Tragedy Girls. It's getting a new Blu-ray release thanks to Vinegar Syndrome and Gunpowder in Sky. Special embossed slipcovers by Haunt Love is available at vinegarsyndrome.com. In a odd but this just kind of makes sense bit of news, the fantastic Slumber Party Massacre comes to VHS. The Blu-ray is out now, and the VHS is headed our way with only one of the three variants still in stock. It's the standard edition. Whittier Entertainment has the 80s slasher revival on VHS, and the film has been cropped to its original aspect ratio of 4 by 3 full frame. It's officially licensed from Shout Factory and has been approved by director Danishka Esterhays. Now it's time for the extra bits, the little delicious fingers and toes of horror that don't fit anywhere else. The King of Horror's new novel is headed our way in September. Stephen King let everyone know that Fairy Tale will be set for release on September 6th, 2022. The novel is about a 17-year-old boy who inherits the keys to a parallel world where good and evil are at war, and the stakes could not be higher for their world or ours. And Trick or Treat Studios is once again coming for our wallets this week when they let everyone know that Psycho Gorman will be a mask. You can be Psycho Gorman. The company famous for masks is giving us the lovable alien set on universal destruction. And that's going to do it for the news this week. All right, racing fans. Here we go. It's time for our first double feature. Let's start with 1990s Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. This is the first of these films not to involve Toby Hooper. The film was marketed around the fact that the MPAA had given the film an X rating and it needs severe cuts to get down to an R rating. However, it was released in the then dreaded month of January where films were dumped to die and it only made 5.5 million dollars making it the worst one at the box office to date it is also the first time that leatherface and the sawyer family were under the stewardship of rob shay's new line cinema of course shay's involvement is how the tone rubber bands back to the dark and grittiness of the first film leaving the black comedy and probably arguably where this franchise should have stayed genre behind this film unlike the first one has far too many unintentional funny moments of bad acting bad plot and just nonsense a lot of this probably has to do with the speed of production and the lack of a guiding hand through that production and probably some a little bit to do with the ever meddlesome shay the studio had cast Kane Hodder as Leatherface even before a director had been nailed down, even shooting a teaser trailer. But after losing their first director and then offering it to everyone from Tom Savini to Peter Jackson, Jeff Burr stepped up and came on board to shoot. New Line Cinema said they were going back to the hardcore horror, a statement that shows to me just how much Shay and New Line Cinema missed the purpose of the first film 
Again, Gunnar Hansen was asked to reprise his role as Leatherface and could not come to an agreement on compensation. Burr then cast R.A. Meinhof to play, with Hotter filling in the role of stunt coordinator and double stunt double for Leatherface. The film was shot in Valencia, California, the home of Six Flags Magic Mountain. Supposedly screams from the famous L.A. area theme park can be heard in the film. Burr also was fired a week into production because Shay was mad that it was over budget and over schedule. Okay, but because literally no one wanted to make this movie, uh, he got the gig back because they couldn't find anyone to replace him. All of this chaos is apparent in the final cut of the film that feels like a movie that would you would make if someone told you and never let you see Hooper's original. So you got like a telephone version of what Texas Chainsaw Massacre is. That's what this movie is. After all the work to get it off the ground, the film then struggled with the MPAA to get an R rating. Fun fact, it's the last film to receive the X rating as the MPAA shortly after this film was made, uh, introduced the NC-17 rating. That at least is some explanation for how boring and goreless a film that has Greg Nicotero as its FX person is. It's, it's just unforgivable, the speed at which they rushed this, and then the lack of taking into account what the MPAA would allow or not allow. And I guess maybe some of that is on Nicotero, probably not, but I don't know. Let's get into the movie itself. I think the nicest thing I can say about it is it's forgettable. I've had to watch this movie three times and I still barely can remember the events of the film without my notes. So these are going to be quick, short hits because watching these movies this week was miserable. They're some of the worst horror movies I've ever watched. They're definitely the worst horror movies I've ever covered on the show. And it's really boomeranged me around on the franchise. <laughs> the film is just really darkly lit. Um, it, that makes it hard to watch. And it's mostly just a bad ripoff of the first film. The setup for the Sawyer family is just too obvious. The brilliance of the first film, in part, was the reveal of the gas station in the family scheme. You know from the second you see Viggo Mortensen show up at the gas station like a cowboy white knight that he's a part of the family. He's too good of a person to be in this movie. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, his first introduction is too good. Like... It's suspicious how good he is. So you're just like, oh, yeah, he's definitely one of the Sawyers. And guess what? He absolutely is. The plot follows a girl and her highly unlikable boyfriend on a road trip. The couple have vague relationship problems stemming from, I think she is moving to England. I just put moving to England in my notes. So I think, I mean, like, okay. <laughs> I can't remember the Pacifics, and that normally isn't a problem for me. I don't usually stress specifics in a horror film, but this film doesn't have characters. It doesn't have good kills, and it doesn't have gore, and it doesn't have a driving villain. The film doesn't really have anything 
but the unnecessary reference to Leatherface raping women to continue the Sawyer lineage. The film is flat and boring and feels like a product of the late 80s, early 90s New Line Cinema. All of the shit to shag on that. I think there isn't anything that stands out to me as fresh or innovative or a reason for the franchise and the series to continue. And it is kind of it is the film that has started to turn me on the Enterprise as Texas Chainsaw Massacre as a franchise at all. Like I'm starting to wonder if there's any more to the story that can be gleaned or be given significance than what we saw in the first film. It's just not fun. Kane Hodder can't even like fix it. And that's probably because of all of the cuts, but it's just not a fun movie. So I, I, I don't want to harp on movies because I know there's people out here who are going to be like, no, I love Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. It's good. So like, I just don't want to put a whole lot of energy into ragging on something that I thought was a miserable experience. We're going to move on to the second feature of our day, <laughs> which somehow is only marginally better than the last movie we talked about. And the movie we're talking about is Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation. You would think the film being brought back into the hands of someone who was involved with the original would make this film better. It's written and directed by Kim Hinkle, who co-wrote the 1974 film with Hooper. Like, that should be a sign that we're getting a better movie, and we are not. It is mind-numbingly boring. And incomprehensible. It bounces around between plot and subplot and the secret society and things that you would think would be cool, things that they play with in other movies, like Cabin in the Woods. There's a connection to both of those in a second that just don't transfer, don't make it through the screen. I just... It does have some good acting. Uh, Matthew McConaughey is Matthew McConaughey in this movie. He is vicious and mean. And he is all right, all right, all right. Matthew McConaughey. He just is Matthew McConaughey. That is who he is, even from this first role that he got. Uh, Renee Zellweger is our final girl. And she is a highlight of the film. Like, her character is a character that feels fleshed out and real, but it is literally the only one, and that is not enough to anchor this movie. The fact that this is both of their first feature roles is going to be important when we talk about the distribution of this film. Hint, Cabin in, think Cabin in the Woods. Uh, the film went back to Texas for the filming, and... It was, as all of these films seem to be, a, quote, very, very rough time for everyone, according to J.M. Logan, a makeup artist on set. Zellweger has also said, it was ridiculous. How we pulled it off, I have no idea. I'm sure none of it was legal. Everything we did was a little bit dangerous. I don't think people realize how dangerous film sets are full stop, and I really don't think people realize how dangerous film sets were in the 70s and 80s. Some of the stories that come off of these sets. The film was shown at South by Southwest in March of 1995 under the title Return of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It then opened on 27 screens on September 22nd, 1995 and grossed $44,272. 
And here's the part where it's very cabin in a woodsy. This happened with that film too. The film was basically shelved until 1997 when it was recut, re-released as Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation, because both Matthew McConaughey and Renelle Zellweger had become names we know thanks to films like A Time to Kill and Jerry Maguire. Same thing happened to Cabin in the Woods. Cabin in the Woods got shelled and then Chris Hemsworth became Thor and they put that movie out. I wish horror wouldn't do this. We get enough issues with credibility in the genre, but when distributors and producers and executives pull this kind of behavior to get people to watch the beginnings of a person's career... This kind of treatment is why those actors don't come back to the genre. Producer Robert Kuhn has said Columbia Pictures held the film to wait for the release of Jerry Maguire. Matthew, Matthew McConaughey's agent is rumored to have gotten involved to try to suppress the theatrical release of the film because McConaughey is a huge star that summer with A Time to Kill. Again, it had a very limited release of about 20 cities and 23 scarings, and it earned $53,111. I mean, it ticked off Henkel, too, who thought that Columbia TriStar wasn't doing what they were supposed to promote the film, and he's right. They let it go out to die the first time and then popped it back up in some weird kind of what can we do because the two stars of our our very bad horror movie are now famous for other things? Like, it's gross. Like, it is one of the worst things this genre has done, and they do it all the time. I hate it. This is the worst grossing film in the franchise. It made about a hundred and something thousand dollars total. Hundred and thirteen thousand dollars total, I think. All right, so let's get on to the film. Let's talk about the film. It's confusing. It doesn't make a lick of sense when it isn't force feeding us a fourth helping of the same, but somehow worse scenes from the first film. It somehow tries to weave in a plot about a secret society. And this film is slightly better than the film that comes before us. And the fact that the reveal of Daria, the, the insurance agent, being a part of the like ongoings of the family seem less contrived. The family name is changed. They're now the Slaughter family from the Sawyer family. I just, it's probably the better acting that pulls the ruse off. Like that's, but like really that's the only thing I could say I like about it. It is less contrived than the entry before it. But honestly, I am super struck with how this film is just another regurgitation of everything we've seen to this point. Not even the Sally Hardesty cameo at the end of it saves it. I have must have blacked out how much I dislike these movies because I don't even think like younger me would be into these movies because they're just they're not fun to watch. They're not even fun in a way that you can like get behind something or like maybe at a midnight showing you get like rowdy with a crowd and you have like a nostalgia memory of that like they're just bad <laughs> and I don't like talking about bad movies like if I don't like it I don't need to promote it in the world it's bad is kind of how I feel about it you can really see how this film though pushed 
New Line Cinema into doing a reboot. And the only thing I have to look forward is that I have fond memories of the early to mid 2000 reboots. I liked it when I saw it in the theater. And that was the last time I saw both of those movies. So who knows what it's going to be like. But I am so glad to be done with this part of the franchise. It has been a slog to get through these two movies. The first one set in my mind that maybe this shouldn't, maybe this is an IP that was better as a singular movie. This one cemented it. I'm actually a little bit disappointed that it's not going to be a full reboot because while I think the reboot, we'll get into it tomorrow when we talk about it on the video and mini pod, but I think the reboot has problems from what I could remember but at least it's not boring like this was and regurgitated and unoriginal and the cross-dressing. I didn't even get into that. It's not great. I don't know why we needed to do that again. The early 2000, the, this isn't even the early 2000s. This is like the mid to late nineties and we're still trying to code queer people as evil and gross because, and so I don't like any of that part of it either. I just, I didn't like this. These movies were miserable to watch. I'm glad it's over. I probably will never watch either of them again. That's going to do it this week. I'm your ghostess, Spencer. You can find me all over the internet as Miss Nintendeek64. You can find the podcast at A Halloween Club on Twitter and Instagram. Please leave a review and a star rating on the iTunes store. It really helps people find the podcast. And don't forget to tune into this feed or check out the YouTube channel for the rest of Chainsaw Week. Tomorrow, we'll be covering the 2003 Platinum's Dune reboot. So you know what time it is. Sleep. Or don't. If you're gonna kill me, then do it! <laughs>